This is hell. Hello. Hi, Chicago. Hi, everyone else. This is hell. Producer Alex here, bringing you another limbo edition of God's Favorite Radio Show. Your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio host Chuck is still on the mend from a colonial extraction of his very own. Uh, He's doing better, though. He stepped outside for the first time in 47 days into a glorious Chicago spring. Daffodils up, magnolias popping against the sky, KN95s blowing in the breeze. Uh, Made my day to hear that Chuck was able to enjoy the outdoors again. Glad he's back up on his feet. We are playing staff picks all week, this week, and next week, and I gotta hurry up because mine is a long one today. Dan, Lindsay, and Sebastian will be in studio all week. We got a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and after today's interview, this week's question from hell and rotten history. Listener Kilter asked me to replay Chuck's 2016 interview with Guy McPherson on near-term climate extinction, and I'm gonna, next week. This week, though, playing one for myself. We're going to be revisiting last year's conversation with Panache Chigomadze on her Africa is a Country piece, The Cry of Black Worldlessness. It is a striking conversation. I hope you like it. Thanks for sticking with us, everyone. Uh, Chuck's making his way back. I think we're going to hear from him sooner than uh, you might expect. And in the meantime, send him wishes if you want. Chuck at thisishell.com. Find him on Facebook. Uh, enjoy this interview, and we can't wait to get back to the show. I'm hoping May. I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen in May. So uh, thanks for everyone for sticking with us. We'll be back soon. Until this, until then, enjoy this interview with Panache Chigumadzi from 2021. It's a personal fave. Okay, bye. In South Africa, inequality is rampant. Unemployment is skyrocketing. The majority are minoritized and marginalized. Land is still held in a few white hands as impoverished blacks are victims of deadly violence. Here to help us have a better understanding of why things have gone so bad in post-apartheid South Africa, essayist and novelist Panache Chugamadze posted the AfricaIsACountry.com article, The Cry of Black Worldlessness. Welcome to This Is Help. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm just wondering when you say this is hell and um, it's a little bit too apt. Yes, it is. It's a little. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've been doing this for almost 26 years now. And people hey. ask me, why do you do only talk about such hellish topics? I'm just stuck because it's the name of the show. <laughs> You're stuck in the inferno. <laughs> right. Uh, you write that the world is dead. Our ancestors cried as the 1779 to 1879 wars of dispossession expanded the reach of 1652's settler colonial conquest deep into the South Africa interior. Our ancestors cried that it was not only black people who suffered a social death, but the land. Indeed, the world suffered death, too. Of course, here in the States, as I was saying in the introduction, and likely throughout the West or Global North or whatever you want to call it, the century of wars are not called wars of dispossession. It's simply the era of colonialism. What is missed when we see this as an era of colonialism instead of a time of dispossession of land and people, of the world and society dying through dispossession? Well, of course, from my vantage point growing up in South Africa, colonialism obviously has a negative connotation. It's something that is going to be associated with the disposition of Black people, of my ancestors, right? So it's, it's. I suppose when I'm here in the West, the way in which people can talk about colonialism in sort of very benign terms and sort of, you know, the age of expansion, the age of imperialism, as if that kind of era was 
just a natural expansion of, you know, um, the extension of European civilization, right? Um, and a just, you know, um, a really ratifying and the sense of the right of conquest that, of course, um, these peoples need to be brought into our orbit, into uh, Western civilization. But it was an incredibly violent process that is still unfolding. Um, and I think what's really interesting, especially, I think, you know, I was born in Zimbabwe, grew up in South Africa, um, and I'm here in the United States. And these are all three settler colonies. Um, and there's a way in which we sometimes uh, take for granted, or very often take for granted, the legitimacy of the settler states that were created. So we do not think about the kind of theft of land that comes in. So we say this is a nation of immigrants. Rather, this is an a, a, a nation of settlers. And when we say the settler, or where we foreground settler colonialism, it's to foreground the violence, the theft, the genocide, the slavery, um, the forced labor that was required to create these nation states by 1776 in South Africa, the Union of South Africa in um, 1910, um, in Zimbabwe in 1922, or Rhodesia rather at the time. Um, and subsequently, the idea that we are simply trying to democratize these states is quite problematic because we're not going back to the original sins, if we want to call it that, but as well as really examining the kind of violence that maintains these states. What is the violence, both economic, psychic, existential, um, epistemic, that require that is required to maintain the settler state such that this is only land, their land in metaphor, their land in memory, right? So that's really... What I'm interested in the piece um, in doing is to really look at how South Africa in its extremities is really emblematic of many of the conditions of the world. It's the, really the exception that proves the rule. Um, Stuart Hall often referred to South Africa as the limit case in the theoretical sense, as well as the um, limit case in the, in the political sense, as well as the test case in terms of thinking about how we can organize and how we can struggle for liberation for all people, but of course, the most marginalized groups of people. So that's really sort of what I'm interested in in this piece is speaking to how South Africa can both understand, help us understand um, the condition of capitalism, but in particular racial capitalism in the world um, that you describe as being in a state of, of health. And you were one of the things that you just mentioned was the legitimacy that the nation states within Africa have, the legitimacy that they give to colonialism is the only way that uh, Africa as a continent can overcome the legacy of colonialism to no longer have those borders that create those nation states. Well, I think it's twofold, just to, to clarify. What I mean by this is, and I'm specifically speaking about settler states, so not just on the, uh, the, the African continent, because America is a settler colony, right? If you speak to indigenous people from their vantage point, this is a, vantage, this is a settler colony, and it is illegitimate in as far as is we are ratifying the right of conquest, right? And what I mean by that is that there has been that theft of land, and land hasn't been returned, the sovereignty has been, um, is not recognized, right? Uh, beyond uh, people being put into tribal reserves. And we see a similar kind of thing in South Africa. So very often what you will see in South Africa is that we're hailed as the most, uh, the world's um, most liberal constitution, right? And this is sort of in 1994, in South Africa, this liberal constitution is held worldwide. And one of the most important things um, and things that really cement our dispossession in South Africa 
is the right of or the the um, the maintenance of property rights. Now you then have to ask how did those property rights come into being? Who owns property and how did that property come into being? So importantly in the piece, one of the things I talk about is um, the 1912 Land Act, the 1930 Native Land Act. And this was a land or an act that was incredibly um, destructive. It pushed off the black majority onto 7% of the land and putting the white minority onto 93% of the land. Today in South Africa, white South Africans own more than 77% of the land. Black South Africans own 1% of the land. Um, so that's the kind of dispossession that is then ratified when you have this right, the, the recognition of property rights without actually then questioning how did this property come into being in the very first place. That's why we have many battles over redistribution um, of land, whether we should have land redistribution without compensation and those kinds of, uh, of battles within the South African um, body politic. And you have a number of legal uh, scholars in South Africa who have been speaking about the post-conquest constitution, i.e. we're ratifying the conquest, we're not undoing the initial dispossession that put us in this position as black people. And I think there are many parallels that can be drawn in the American context as well. So why wasn't that dispossession undone? Why wasn't the 1912 land uh, agreement, why wasn't that torn up once apartheid, uh, once apartheid was ended and the post-apartheid government came in? Well, there's, <laughs> there's a whole body of scholarship around that, but you have to think about the, the time in which in the global political economy um, that saw the end of apartheid. This is, you know, as Fukuyama said, the end of history, right? So the triumph of neo neoliberal democratic or the neoliberal democratic order. Um, and so you're seeing people like Nelson Mandela going to Davos, for example. Um, the IMF is heavily involved in the drawing up of a land reform program in South Africa and particularly a market-based a land reform program. So we call it willing buyer, willing seller. And that's similar to what happened in, in, um, in Zimbabwe, where I'm also from. And so what we saw over the years um, is this implementation. I grew up in that era of willing buyer, willing seller. Um, and it simply doesn't work. First of all, in order to be able to pay the white farmers for um, the land that was you know, forcibly taken in the very first place, it's just, it's just impossible within the GDP. You won't be able to afford it. And very often what you found was the inflation of prices, all kinds of things such that all the targets that were met or set over a series of years were never met. Um, and so what you found is that right now there is a huge debate around the question of or within the constitution um, whether land reform should happen without compensation. Um, on one hand, I would also say that that's a very sort of uh, presentist understanding of the, the, the battle um, for land or for the, the struggle for land reform in South Africa or return to land for Africans, because I think Ultimately, it's not just about the neoliberal turn within the global political economy where South Africa decided to, um, you know, adopt uh, a sort of a neoliberal uh, market kind of orientation within its political programming. Um, you do see that, you know, there have been different kinds of political orientations over the years, over the long duration of South African struggle, where, for example, the African National Congress, what we call the Congress tradition, which again was founded, in fact, incidentally, this is Nelson Mandela's um, African National Congress, was founded in 1912, a year ahead of the 1913 Native Land Act. 
And but what you found at the time was that the 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 articulation of the struggle at the time was along the lines of petitioning the uh, British monarchy to protect or to at least recognize the rights of a particular grouping of Africans within the settler state, within the Union of South Africa. So i.e. recognize the rights of a group of landed and educated black South Africans to be or participate within the apparatus of the settler state. Whereas later on, you then found more radical programs of action, which are saying that actually this is not a struggle for democratization. It is not a multiracial struggle for democratization within a settler state. This is a black-led struggle for the return of land to black people. And this is why we have the split years later in 1955 over the Freedom Charter, where the Pan-Africanist Pan Congress leaves um, the African National Congress because of their disagreement about the terms in which they're framing the struggle. So famously, the Freedom Charter, the first line says that this land belongs to all who live in it. And here they are questioning, the Pan-Africanist Congress is, is coalescing around the idea of the return of the sovereignty to black people, to Africans, and such that anybody else who recognizes that this is first and foremost an African country um, and respects that can form part of this polity, but we need to recognize that there was an initial and unjust conquest. And I think that's the key difference in the posture of struggle is to say, are we calling for a democratization or we might even call it a civil rights struggle within an illegitimate state or illegitimate formation, or are we calling for a fundamentally different political formation, right? And this is why we call the likes of the Pan-Africanist Congress, the Black Consciousness Movement, um, part of what uh, you know, legal scholars and philosophers such as Ndumiso Tladla and Joel Madiri, the Azanian political tradition, who have questioned the legitimacy of South Africa as a settler state. I know that's a bit, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of South African history, but I think what it, one of the things about it is, is that um, what's really productive about paying attention to South Africa and its various struggles for freedom is the ways in which it illuminates many of the questions that we're struggling with today. So, for example, South Africa, many people don't really know, is really the home or the ground that created the terminology um, or the theorizations for what we now understand as racial capitalism out of many of these struggles um, over what do we do with the state of affairs, how do we characterize the state of affairs? Um, long before it was taken up by the likes of Stuart Hall and Cedric Robinson, it was South African Marxists who had theorized racial capitalism by virtue of paying attention to something that seemed peculiar and deviated from our standard understandings of how capital and modes of production are working. Um, and so I think in part of these kinds of struggles and in the, the insistent critiques and uh, study of how the state of affairs have come to be in South Africa, where you have all of these extremities coalescing at really the bottom of, of, of the African continent, there's much that can be revealed, not just about South Africa and not just about the black world, but the world in general. You know, several places online, including Wikipedia, and I'm not suggesting Wikipedia is a reliable source in any way, right. only that it reflects what might be popular, popularly held beliefs. Right. And it's been said by many guests on our show that racial capitalism is a concept coined by Cedric J. Robinson in his book, Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition, published in 1983. What do we miss in understanding 
black Marxism and racial capitalism when we do not recognize that South Africa is the place where this started? I think what's really important, and I think, you know, what was productive with what Cedric Robinson did was to take the very particularized understandings and theorizations that South African Marxists had created through the theorization of, of, of racial capitalism. And I'll give you a brief intellectual history of it just now, um, and then generalized it to the rest of the world. But if in thinking about how this, um, this theorization of, of um, racial capitalism comes to be, it's to even go back all the way uh, to the grand architect of apartheid, who is Hendrik Verwoerd, um, who um, was South Africa's first sociologist. He set up our first sociology department at the University of Stellenbosch, which is really or was the intellectual seat of apartheid. And in the early 1930s, he infamously, having studied in the U.S. Um, and many other places overseas, um, in setting up this department, he was one of the spearheads of a famous 1932 Carnegie Commission on the Poor Whites, right, which is understood to be the blueprint for apartheid. And so, of course, you're hearing Carnegie, and you know what you're hearing is this, this American philanthropic capital, which in the post-emancipation or post-slavery age in the South was concerned with what do we do with the problem of poor whites who now have to compete with formerly enslaved black people. It's a similar kind of concern in South Africa. And there are many parallels between the American South and South Africa in terms of segregation, separate development, many of those kinds of policies. Um, and so that is really how sociology is, is, or at least in the reactive apartheid sense, is formed. And there's a huge kind of alignment with sociologists and power in South Africa. But automatically after the instantiation of, of apartheid in 1948, there begins to be a kind of um, sense of becoming critical of what the apartheid state is doing. Um, but one of the theorizations is a sociological critique, which is the idea that apartheid really is the product of irrational racial beliefs. And if we continue to develop the market, um, many of these or the worst of these um, irrational racial beliefs will be ameliorated. So i.e. the free market will solve this problem, right? And in fact, it is, um, it is kind of hindering apartheid to, or rather it is hindering capitalist production to continue with apartheid. That was the liberal consensus, right? And at the same time, you have the South African Communist Party, um, as well as the ANC, who had theorized what we call um, colonialism of a special type. And this was the idea, the thesis of two South Africans, a white South Africa that is overdeveloped, highly um, capitalist and industrialized, and a black South Africa that is underdeveloped and a feudal order. And so what happens in the wake of um, 1960, the Sharpeville massacre, there's not a lot of organizing happening or mass protests have, have disappeared really in South Africa because of the mass state repression. Um, and so there's a massive challenge then um, of organizing and much of the organizing um, energy is going into campus organizing, particularly through the National Union of South African Students. With this National Union of South African Students, this is really the, the vanguard of uh, campus liberalism, what we call in South Africa non-racialism. And so one person who becomes really important and a group of people really led by Steve Biko, who then leads what we know as the Black Consciousness Movement, who infamously or famously in 1968 leave NUSA saying, Black man, you're on your own. And they are very much invested in centralizing race and the idea that this needs to be a Black struggle for Black self-determination 
on the basis that they had found that their white allies had been uninterested or unwilling to un forego their own interests in ensuring the end of apartheid, or particularly in ensuring the interests of black black students and black people in general. So infamously, there's a, there's a point at which uh, they're at a, a student conference and we have the police are going to come to um, remove black students because there's a 72 hour curfew or 72 hour ban on black people being in white areas because this was a conference organized at the at Rhodes University, which is a white university. And Steve Beacon, his comment said, well, if the police are going to come and remove us violently, we need the white students to stand in front of us or rather lay in front of the police vans. And infamously, the white students wouldn't do that. And they took this to be, you know, after a series of disagreements to say, well, look, this is proof of the fact that we have fundamentally different interests and you're not willing to forego or really have skin in the game. Now, this, I say this, but I highlight this because this black consciousness movement was highly critical of the white liberal left establishment. And it really represented a fundamental crisis intellectually and politically around the legitimacy of the white liberal left. People like Alan Patton, for example, who was really, and I mean, many of your listeners would know, Cry the Beloved Country. Those kinds of liberals at the time were incredibly hurt and felt um, that these black students were being ungrateful. But what this did um, allow was for a fundamental reconfiguration of the race class problematic in theorizing South Africa, such that by already 1970 and 1972, we get one of the first pieces or essays that begin to theorize capitalist modes of production as a product of racial um, racial planning. So, for example, in 1972, there's an essay by Harold Wolpe called Capitalism and Cheap Labor Power, which is really looking at the effect of land and um, or land theft, as well as um, cheap labor that is produced through the migrant labor system. And for your listeners who don't know, the migrant labor system comes into being in order to produce cheap labor in the South African economy. So what happens is that, you know, through the late Native Land Act, we have black people are pushed onto these unarable lands or piece of land, these reserves where black women and older people are supposed to tend to and create a subsistence uh, living and existence for themselves what that is going to subsidize the labor of black men who are then moving into mines, into towns and onto farms and such that the economy no longer has to pay for a family wage because they are subsidized by black women who are living in these reserves, which is why we end up having caste systems and all kinds of influx controls to ensure that there's the artificial depression of black wages through the fundamental and systematic dispossession of black families and destruction of black families. And that's one of the things I highlight in the piece that we're still living with that, the, the, the effect of this wounded kinship that is at the bedrock of racial capitalism. That's one of the things that he's highlighting in this piece, but it was really important in disrupting the sociological critique of apartheid, the idea that in fact, race is only ancillary to the concerns of capital. By 1976, we then have the anti-apartheid movement in apartheid writing the first piece to use, or at least the first known piece to use the word racial capitalism. It's called um, Foreign Capital and the Reproduction of Racial Capital in South Africa. And this was part of the boycott movement. They were calling for uh, the end of foreign investment in South Africa because we could see that it actually um, fosters the worst of the apartheid system. And incidentally, 
1976 is also the year where we have the June 76 Soweto uprisings or the massacre of black students of the black consciousness movement that really sort of brought the world's attention to the atrocities of South Africa. And this paper helps us to see this paper written by Martin Legasic and David Hempson, who are South African Marxists exiled in London, helps us to see that these things are not outside of each other. So there is pressure on the likes of the UK, the United States to pull out of South Africa because that capital is actually fostering this black death, this anti-black violence that we're seeing in South Africa. And now importantly, one of the important spaces in the UK, and this is where a lot of Marxists and you know, important theorizations are happening with the new left, um, we start seeing that um, there's a really important journal, Race and Class, uh, by the Institute of Race Relations in the UK. People like Neville Alexander, who is a South African Marxist, is writing and producing his work there because this paper is interested in, in Black and Third World Revolution. People like Cedric Robinson are moving back and forth and coming to the UK. And, in, and importantly, he spends some time there at the Institute of Race Relation and he, uh, he publishes some of his work there. So by 1980, for example, we have Stuart Hall's infamous, or really not infamous, a famous paper of his race uh, structures of domination and, and, and articulation, or rather race articulation and structures of domination, which draws on that 1972 piece by Harold Wolf. Right, in then articulating um, a racial capitalism, but or a theory of racial capitalism, but generalized for the rest of the world. And this is in 1980, although he doesn't use the word racial capitalism, but it is, again, using the South African critiques to critique the sociological understandings of race and like, also critiquing the economic determinism as well. By 1983, uh, we then have Cedric Robinson publishing Racial Capitalism, and this is after years. And in fact, we know that he spent his time working at uh, working on, on, on the book while he was at the Institute of Race Relations. So there's the circulation of these ideas with all these um, you know, South Africans who are exiled. And of course, there's going to be the, the exchange of ideas. And this is how we then come to have this theorization of racial capitalism. And that's really what is obscured when we only understand racial capitalism to have come out of almost so generous in 1983 with, with, with black Marxism. And there's a really great book right now from uh, Josh Myers. Um, I think it's coming out in November, which really speaks to a lot of this intellectual history. And recently he did a, a great video. If you go into the website of the Institute of Race Relations and speaking to the influence of this time um, on him, his wife, um, Elizabeth um, Robinson, and how this fermentation of ideas very much in a transatlantic understanding of how race and capitalism is working is what helps us then get to black Marxism and then the theorizations of racial capitalism. Greatest answer to a question ever. I am <laughs> telling you, that was amazing. That was really amazing. I'm going to probably go back and listen to that like three or four more times. That was really Incredible. You know, one of the things that you were mentioning earlier, though, was uh, about the role of the, the IMF when it comes to South Africa. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the role of outsiders to the economic devastation that we're seeing right now in South Africa, the violence that we're seeing right now? To what extent is this a product of outsiders? And to what extent is this a product? Because I don't want to take agency away from South African people. And to sure. what extent is this a product of uh, South Africans domestically? Well, I mean, from the very beginning uh, of conquest, uh, global capital has been implicated in South African dispossession. Uh, the Dutch East India Company in 1652 sets up a, a trading post, um, and that's really 
where we get the beginning of permanent settlerdom in South Africa. And this is from many countries in the world where we have all these um, exploration, so-called exploratory companies that are really the beginnings of finance and global capital. This merchant capital really finances settler colonialism and this age of, of, of expansion, right? So, I mean, infamously or famously, again, um, or rather Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations says that one of the most important or two of the most important events in the history of mankind is the discovery of the Americas and the rounding of the Cape of the Good of Good Hope, right? In sort of the history of capital. So when I talk about things like, for example, the Maragana massacre happening in 2012, more than 34 black mine workers were killed um, by police on the instruction of the then uh, black or uh, well, third black president um, at the time, or he's our current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, who was striking for a living wage of $12,500 or other $1,250 at the time. That's the U.S. equivalent. Um, you can imagine that they're striking at a company which historically is actually, well, now it's it's called Lonman, but it was founded um, in the early 1900s as a London Rhodesia company, right? So global capital has always been implicated in the development of South Africa and settler colonialism. And particularly in the great era of these white men's companies, there was this global influx of capital. People like Cecil John Rhodes were very much part of this sort of global expansion such that nothing ever happened in isolation. So every time, for example, in South Africa, what you'll see is that uh, we, uh, you know, there will be a call for nationalization, a call for land redistribution, and we'll be cautioned because they'll say, well, the rand is going to fall. The markets, we're going to be speaking about Moody's. Uh, we're going to be speaking about, you know, what kinds of market rating we're going to have, how, what market sentiment is going to be. But it is always interesting that market sentiment doesn't seem to fall um, when we hear there's high rates of um, inequality, market sentiment doesn't seem to fall um, when we're hearing about the dispossession of black people. Market sentiment cares about capital and capital doesn't care about black life in particular. Um, and so that's one of the things that is incredibly complicated. And I, and I use that Marigana massacre, which is the first state massacre in the post-apartheid era, post era, the worst since uh, June 1976, um, where we're seeing that this is, more than a hundred years of global financial capital, which is running or at least determining the state of affairs with the help of, of course, local actors, very important local actors, like for example, our, our black first or third black president, Sol Ramaphosa. So there's no way that you can ever think about many of these things in isolation. It is always going to be part and parcel of the same kinds of, of systems. You mentioned former President Jacob Zuma's supporters protesting the July 7th prison sentencing for a contempt of the constitutional court in the midst of an ongoing state corruption commission. And you point out that across Zuma's home province of KwaZulu-Natal and the economic hub of Gwateng, many answered the call to render the nation ungovernable, targeting supermarkets, furnishers and clothing and electronic stores. In the carnivalesque chaos, the smash and grab, they were soon joined and outnumbered by ordinary citizens answering to a different rallying cry. Citizens grabbing bread and maize meal and diapers jostled alongside those grabbing cake and couches and flat screens, plunging the nation into a cacophony which the chattering middle classes and their pundits struggled to decipher. How should have those pundits deciphered what they were seeing? What were they missing about the events that were taking place? 
I think, you know, as you've heard me throughout this, this um, interview, I'm always interested in the long durée. I'm a historian. I'm interested in having looking beyond the presentist um, um, dimension. Um, and here we're seeing that there's a long history of dispossession that doesn't just start in the post-apartheid era. Um, some of these things people will ask, you know, why protest, right? What South Africa is known as the world's protest capital. And there's a long history for many of these things. I think one of the things that's important to state outright is that there are multiple things, many things can be true at once. Many people are simply just, you know, opportunists taking and uh, taking advantage. We saw people who um, were driving Mercedes Benzes and, you know, going and taking flat screens. But the vast majority of people um, were poor people, and that is the vast majority of Black people in this country. And I think sometimes it is easy then to sort of deflect around. Um, I mean, of course, questions of corruption are always going to be central because they exacerbate a particular kind of um, economic situation. That's, that's, that's what we see in South Africa right now. However, I think it is also important to think about the long durée that this South Africa is not working and hasn't been working for a long time. Uh, in as far as Jacob's or the President Jacob Zuma provided an opening, we can lay blame on, on him and his supporters for particular kinds of, of, of lawlessness that might have taken place. However, for such amounts of people, the great the sheer numbers of people to have joined in, we then really have to do a lot of soul searching to think about sort of how does this happen, where, when, what are the things that we need to be thinking about, particularly those of us who are in the middle class. And again, one of the things about South Africa, many people will go, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about people going to the uh, Cape Town or people really mark, remarking how developed South Africa is, what a wonderful economy it is. It is working for a small majority, or rather a small minority. For the vast majority of people, poor black people, it is not working. We have 75% youth unemployment in this country. Uh, we have one of the world's highest rates of inequality. Again, the face of it largely being poor black and female. So it renders black life in this country superfluous. So the idea of a social contract um, really doesn't really hold much water for a lot of people because on one hand, there's the historic disposition that is then also made worse by the fact that then those who are ruling in the ruling party are also then corrupt and also abrogating our funds to themselves. However, what is sometimes missed in the, in the analyses of corruption is the structural dimension of these problems. They have been controversially, but I think there's an important point around thinking about what happens in post-colonial states where corruption and patronage becomes the primary mode of redistribution where we haven't had that fundamental economic redistribution for the, the, the majority. And what I mean is that for a lot of uh, Black people where there is the exclusion from the economy um, and the levers of control and the control of, of, the, of uh, the means of production, the primary means of accessing wealth is through politics. When I was a student, for example, most young Black people, I was at the University of, of Witwatersrand, we know that, you know, unlike, let's say, your white friends who might be going to work um, in, you know, on their parents' farms, in the parents' companies and get particular kinds of opportunities, um, we don't have the same kinds of leg up in the economy. And one route that a lot of people would take is the route of politics. That's one route of accessing wealth. And that's a problem. That's a structural and historic problem that's often missed when we only look at corruption as the problem of failing African elites. It is also to do a very much implicated with 
the what we call in South Africa the negotiated settlement. So, i.e., in 1994, what we call Codesa, um, where there is, or not just 1994, it's, it's it's a number of years of negotiated negotiations between um, the National Party and the white settler state. Um, and their political organs and the former liberation movement, there's the idea that we will give you political control if you maintain or uh, continue to, to respect property rights and the economic interests of the white minority. So whenever we have discussions of, of, of corruption, it also needs to be understood within that frame. This is not to... to, um, to um, uh, you know, uh, to pass judgment, or rather, it's not to not pass, pass judgment and to to um, remove a sense of culpability and agency from the government. But I think, as um, I, I mentioned earlier, it is to say that we cannot understand the problems of the post-apartheid era as only a function of the post-apartheid. We have to understand it within the lingerie. Um, and there are many important contingents, I mean, important um, continuances within how the economy is functioning or this disposition is functioning, as well as important changes. And that's what we need to pay attention to. And that's really what my article was saying is that, you know, already in the, the sort of late 19th century, when our ancestors were going through or were facing the dispossession of these, of, of these uh, wars of conquest, there was that cry that the war, the land is dead. Um, or the world is dead. And here again, we're seeing that when people are going and, you know, what middle classes would think as senseless acts of destruction, senseless and meaningless acts of, you know, um, of destruction and, and violence, we have to understand what is the profound existential and material condition that leads people to do the kinds of things that they're doing. You mentioned the marginalized, the minoritized majority, which suggests mm -hmm. that there is minority rule. Does minority rule exist in South Africa? How is today's marginalized majority different from yesterday's apartheid? Right. So what I mean by a minoritized majority, obviously here it's very much race and class inflicted, right? I mean a minoritized black majority which is important because very often we think about being minorities in America at, at, a, new, as a, at a numerical dimension. But yeah, it is a numerical majority that has been minoritized through a vast range of social, economic, political um, uh, forces, right? These are historical forces that mean that Black South Africans are marginalized within their own country. Yes, nominally we have the political power but in terms of the means of production in terms of the owners of the economy we simply are not part of that we have black middle classes but as many people often point out being black middle class in south africa often just means access to credit it doesn't mean access to wealth uh, many black people in the country really just you know are a paycheck away from from poverty and so you know one of the really concrete ways to understand this minoritization as i mentioned earlier today white south africans are nine percent of the population they hurt they own 72 percent of the land black people are 79 percent of the population and they own one percent that is ridiculous I don't know anywhere else in the world where something like this can fly and people think this is an ordinary or this is a normal state of affairs. Um, that kind of, of inequality, again, which is ratified by our 1990-94 constitution, which continues to be um, ratified um, by many of these constitutional processes in South Africa, that really undergirds much of the kinds of inequality in South Africa. Land is really the ultimate 
um, form of, of, of economic wealth that you can have. But one of the things, again, that I, I do also want to, to, to bring into the piece is to speak to the fact that all of these things must be understood both materially and existentially. So you have people or rather groups like the Abasali Basim Jondolo, which is a really important uh, Shaq Dollars movement, who testified to the 2015 um, Human Rights Commission that in this country, poor black people are not counted as human beings. That is part of what it means to be a minority, that in your own land, nominally in your own land, you are not even counted as a human being. So the struggle for land and dignity is incredibly important. And those are the dimensions that I think are missed sometimes um, when we focus mo uh, merely on political majority having political rule, how we need to ask questions about how is it possible that you have political rule and yet poor black people, the vast majority of black people remain marginalized. And of course, this is done in uh, concert with and in um, collusion with the ruling party. However, I do think it's always important, very, very often, People would like to say things quite flippantly and say that, you know, the African National Congress sold out in 1994, um, i.e. through the, the Kudesa negotiations and the negotiated settlement, um, which, again, importantly, there was no outright winning of the struggle for apartheid. It was a negotiation. Um, we do not or we, we do ourselves a disservice by not historicizing both the conditions of dispossession and how we get there to this point, as well as also not really doing enough of the interrogation of the politics and the political formations and understandings of what the problem is. And I think the ANC really from its beginning failed to, or it will never address in its articulation of the problem, in its articulation of what its mode of struggle will be, will never really address what is going to, what the condition of black people through non-racialism, neoliberal, or sometimes sort of left liberal kinds of understandings of what is happening in South Africa. We really have to, at least, of course, what you're hearing is that I am from those who are of the Azanian political tradition. I believe in black consciousness. I believe in pan-Africanism, of course, undergirding, but a really a, a, a sound understanding of racial capitalism and its mechanisms. That's what you need. And the fundamental redistribution of land and many of the other key economic indicators and resources in the country. That's what you need in South Africa. But within the current political economy, that's simply not going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen without profound consequences for most Black people. So are Black people's lives any less superfluous in the post-apartheid state than they were under apartheid? Well, I think, again, you know, I'm a historian and, histori you know, history is about the, the study of continuities and changes and that, you know, of course, there are important changes. I'm speaking as I'm speaking right now. Um, of course, a particular platform that I have as a black middle class person and, they, you know, people can move freely, supposedly. Um, you don't have to carry a pass. The important sort of political changes that have happened, we have a much bigger black middle class. However, we're also seeing the, the widening of inequality in South Africa, really spectacular wealth that we see. We really continue to see what our uh, president, former president Tabumbeke called the two economies, right? Which is a white developed or white dominated developed economy and the black um, underdeveloped economy. But importantly, these we need to understand that those that that those two economies are part of one. That one actually subsidizes and creates and allows a condition for the flourishing of um, these high living uh, standards of living 
for a small minority, which includes some black people. So what we do have in the postpartum era is that there's been the inclusion of some black people, a small minority of black people, some politically, economically connected, um, who can share in some of this um, wealth nominally. Um, so that's how you see our former uh, or our current president sitting on the board of Lonmin and saying that, or rather him then calling for concomitant action against these protesting black mine workers. All right, so we're seeing this kind of really, as I as I mentioned in this piece, this dazzling contradiction and paradox in the country. So yes, I think again, I'm interested in the long durée, but I I do acknowledge that there are important changes. However, there are also important continuities in terms of the undervaluing of black life. So again, I mentioned the fact that when these mining um, uh, conglomerates were being formed in South Africa, um, and, and importantly, South Africa has 40% or had 40% of the world's gold stores um, when our minerals revolution in the late 19th century began at a time when um, you know the gold standard um, became implemented. And so what you had at the time was the kinds of mining companies that were producing black death at a rate of one in 10 miners, right? And the same companies, again, the continuities, if you think about this lawnman that our president sits on, that's the very same kinds of companies that are then shooting at black workers for demanding a living wage. So again, we see, as I write in the piece, black death continues to produce the rainbow's riches. Those are some of the continuities. Of course, the difference now being that now you can have a black president sitting on the board. Before, he would be nowhere near the, the, the management offices of that company. But you still see at the bottom, black people remain there at the bottom and remain superfluous, but as well as actually incredibly important to the functioning, the reproduction of this settler economy. Also, you write that by forcing the black majority onto 7% of the country's arable land, the settler state reserved the lion's share for white settlers who conscripted black people into the cheap labor needed to fuel its voracious mining and agricultural furnaces, inspired in part by W.E.B. Du Bois, the souls of black uh, folks, Saul Patia's night of life bore witness to black people's spiritual strivings under dispossession of dazzling contradiction and paradox that still circumscribes our lives today and testified it is one thing to live the double consciousness of a minority it is quite another live the double consciousness of a minoritized majority how is existence as a minority different from being a minoritized majority is there a greater sense of powerlessness when you are in the majority and yet you are minoritized you know i think it's to say and this is not a hierarchy of 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 um of oppressions it's to say that there's something very particular about you know what you know uh, to use the word that uh, jean paul satra used in in the introduction to um uh, Franz Fanon's book, say the nervous conditions that arise out of this idea that this is your land and yet you're being minoritized. Um, because I think sometimes, you know, there can be the idea that if you're the minority, certain things might make sense. Of course, you're not in power because you do not have the numerical advantage. Um, this is not your land. Perhaps if it was your land, i.e. If, if this was the land of your ancestors, perhaps things might be different. Um, and so perhaps there's that idea that there's the promise of return or there's certain ways in which they can provide a psychological buttress to the conditions. Now, if you can imagine 
where in South Africa, and I mean, many Africans come to, to or Africans from non-settler co uh, colonies come to, to South Africa and to really think, well, how is this possible? This is supposedly your land. And yet you continue to find yourselves looking in on the major economic decisions that are being made. You do not own the means of production in this, in this country. Um, you find in this country, it's not just economically, it's social, social and economic. So, for example, the language of business continues to be English. Myself and many people continue to go to um, white-dominated schools. That's sort of one way in which, um, you know, we can see that the ways to gain economic access and benefit is to be able to function and have a particular kind of fluency in the language of those who own the means of production as well as those who control socioeconomic production. I'm also in the literary uh, space in South Africa, for example, for the longest time, and it continues to be, we've been calling for the decolonization of the, 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 the literary industry because of the ways in which it has minoritized uh, a black writer. So for example, you would um, you know, go to a festival um, and you're speaking largely to a white audience and you feel like you're an anthropological subject. You know, Tell us how does it feel to be a problem or tell us what's happening with your people. There's that minoritization, not just economically, but socially, um, culturally, all these different ways in which that continues to happen. And I think that's a profound violence that continues to happen because of the fact that this is happening in your land. I think it's one thing, again, to be able to subjugate people who are minority and have been removed from their land, we have to then think, what does it require um, for people to be able to continue the subjugation um, in this present day and age? And I think that's what we're trying to, to highlight here in this piece is that kind of profound um, dis, uh, uh, sense of contradiction. And one of the, the concrete ways that I, want, I, I highlight in the piece about this existential damage um, and existential crisis is the fact that, you know, in, in uh, Black South Africa, at least, one of the most popular shows is a show called Kumbulukaya, meaning Remember Home. And it's a show about, or really that's bringing uh, Black families together. So people are calling for a long-lost mother, calling for a brother who they can't find, calling for a father, for, calling for a sister. And, you know, this is really speaking to the fractured family and kinship structures. And this is directly a result of migrant labor. It's a directly a result of that Native Land Act, where there was that dispossession and destruction of black, of black family life. And we continue to see that today. Those are the continuances that even today, even in the post-apartheid era, we're seeing how black family life has been fractured because that's part of the blueprint of how this economy functions. Yes, of course, the difference being now that, again, in terms of change, that yes, nominally, you can live wherever you want to live in the country. However, economic circumstances, historic circumstances have meant that we have these fractures in families that we continue to see. And that's why I highlight what Nathaniel Mackey speaks of in the African-American context as wounded kinship. And typically when that's spoken of, that's in the context of Africa and Afro-diaspora and, uh, and sort of the, the breaking of relations between Africans and diaspora and on the continent, as well as intra-community com uh, relations within uh, the African diaspora. However, we're not saying that the wounded kinship, as I mentioned in the piece, wounded kinship is the bedrock of racial capitalism. The destruction of Black family life is at the very heart of, of racial capitalism. And that continues to circumscribe Black life today. And that's really part of the heart of the profound existential and material crisis that we find ourselves in today.
That is what was one of the most stunning parts about your writing. You also cite South African novelist Yvette Christians uh, involving, mm-hmm. and, uh, and sorry, invoking Toni Morrison, reminding us, indeed, memory or rememory is the gift that the living give constantly daily to the dead. Memory is the gift of a survivor, and as a gift, it is the medium of obligation to those who have gone before and those who come after. And you mentioned that in the wake of the 1913 Land Act, South Africa's most revered black composer, Ruben Tholakele Kaluza, sounded our black cry of wounded kinship and worldlessness in Silu Sapo, or I Land Act, which for a time was the African National Congress anthem before God Bless Africa replaced it. The lyrics from Silu Lopo, uh, the original African National Congress anthem, include, We cry for the children of our fathers, who roam around the world without a home, even in the land of our ancestors. What does it reveal to you about the African National Congress by changing to God Bless Africa, which ironically starts with the two words, our land, when clearly South Africa is not our land for the majority of South Africans? Well, I mean, so the, for those um, in the African context, they might not recognize what you're translating into Gosisikilele Africa, which in fact is the great nationalist, um, African nationalist hymn um, that was incredibly important, not just in South Africa, but across um, uh, across um, Africa in terms of liberation struggle. Um, and it's also adopted in Zimbabwe by the nationalists there. Um, and that is the basis of, um, or it is part of the national anthem in South Africa, as well as the national anthem in Zimbabwe and many other places uh, on the continent. So that is part of the sense, or at least, uh, I don't. I don't have the entire intellectual history of of the change between going from um, Eland Act to Ngosisikilele Africa. But in that era, where we did have um, what we'd have as sort of what we call the Ethiopianist movement, um, which is sort of um, independent Black Christianity that allowed for really important critiques of the sort of uh, so-called or the 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 the, the colorblind national or the colorblind uh, brotherhood that the Christian missionaries were proffering to Africans, at least saying that, you know, if you become part of sort of Christian civilization, you can be part of this non-racial brotherhood. That's the kind of promise that was that was uh, put in forth. But importantly, that era of Ethiopianism or Black independent Christianity formed a basis for the coming together of Africans from many different groupings. And you know, people will speak of it as sort of early um, forms of modern African nationalism, early forms of black nationalism. You also see this in the United States. I happen to study the church movements and, and as part of liberation, black liberation theology. So we can have that discussion later on. But it's to say that neither are any less radical than the other, because I think the key part of what was happening with this Gosisikilele Africa is the call for Africans to liberate themselves. And the idea with Ethiopians, the idea being Africa for Africans. And that was the kind of consciousness that undergirded a song like that. And that's why it was taken up as part of liberation struggles um, across the continent. Uh, This doesn't mean to say that um, I do not have my critiques of the ANC and the Congress movement and their form of consciousness there, but I think it is unfair or would be unfair and reductive of me to not be appreciative of the kinds of revolutionary consciousness or the kind of critiques that were being enabled by Black independent Christianity at that time. So I think that what the Silu Sapo Eland Act uh, by Ruben Tulakele Kaluza um, was doing at the time was to be very particular about 
land struggle in the country and what that was meaning for, for Black people at the time. And again, as I mentioned, it is um, the ANC is formed on the eve of the Native Land Act. However, with the um, rise of or the taking up of Ngozi in the Africa, God Bless Africa, which is a, an African nationalist hymn, it was to then generalize the struggle beyond the particularities of just the, 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 the land dispossession. Um, I think we can have many different conversations about this, and I don't want to have a teleology um, of, 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 of struggle because I think it's from these Ethiopianist movements that are, that are forms of Black national, rather Black liberation theology that are absolutely central to um, the Pan-Africanist Congress who, are, who form radical critiques of the ANC. It is absolutely central to the Black consciousness movement at the time. And that, those are the people, and these are the spaces in which Black consciousness within a spiritual and, you know, obviously uh, Christian idiom was quite important in being able to form a critique of um, the settler state and also allowing Black people to move beyond the fact that I'm Zulu, I'm Sutu, Tosa, we can now have a common Black identity around um, sort of an independent Black Christian idea. And this is also part of a global movement. Again, we can have that history another day of Black people who are identifying themselves as Ethiopians. And so, for example, what you find um, within the settler state across Southern Africa, there's a huge amount of energy devo devoted to suppressing the Ethiopianist movements um, and this kind of threat that they pose because they are they're the first real, um, in the, in the so-called modern sense, the first Black institutions, the first independent Black institutions that we have after military conquest of independent African polities. One last question for you, and our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So mm -hmm. is South Africa's current post-apartheid government, is that sustainable? Is a government that does not give the majority of its citizens dignity, is that state's failure inevitable? <laughs> I will never want to be quoted on such a thing, but I do. I will say that beyond the ANC, because I think the ANC is just one in the latest apparatus in the construction and maintenance of the illegitimate settler state of South Africa. I think South Africa is unsustainable. It's not working for the majority of its people. It's not working for Black people and hasn't for a very long time. In fact, from the beginning of its creation in 1652 with the Dutch East India Company, to 1910 with the Union of South Africa, it's never worked and it is built on the dispossession of black people. Um, and so our government's failure has been in both its articulation of what our struggle and what our problem or what a crisis is, it is unable and will always be unable to address that unless they understand and frame the problem fundamentally differently as well as unless they have a different kind of political will, that would mean that they're not going to collude and be formed part of the kind of corruption and the kind of um, killing machinery that sees a Marikana massacre. So I don't think South Africa is, 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 is sustainable as um, an entity, as a post-conquest state, but this is a question that goes far beyond the African National Congress. And I think it's also a question that goes far beyond South Africa. It's also a question about how the world and the global political, econ global political economy functions. This has been 
a fascinating conversation. And the problem with that is we're going to be bugging you for the rest of your life to come back on our show because this, <laughs> I really want to continue this conversation. Thank you so much for being on. Essayist and novelist Panache Chugamadze posted the Africa is a Country.com article, The Cry of Black Worldlessness. Follow Panache on Twitter at Panache Chig and find out more about Panache at her website, PanacheChigamadze.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. And I'm serious, we are going to annoy you for the rest of your life. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you again. Happy to be annoyed. Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You're listening to This Is Hell, and you just listened to Chuck's October 2021 interview with writer Panache Chigomadze, author of the article The Cry of Black Worldlessness for Africa is a Country. Hi, producer Alex here on a Monday morning. We're playing staff picks daily until Chuck gets better. And he's already better than he was last week, so we must be doing something right. I got an all-new Rodden History coming your way, but first, this week's question from hell. Not one of my proudest moments, but I already hit post on the thing, so uh, no turning back now. This week's question from hell is, what is your Calvin peeing on? What is your Calvin peeing on? If you don't get that reference, uh, my apologies. And if you do get that reference, my apologies. Uh, you can leave your answer to this question from hell, which is, what is your Calvin peeing on? On Facebook or Twitter, or email us, alex at thisishell.com or seb at thisishell.com. We'll be reading your responses all week, and our favorite wins their pick of TIH merch. We'll announce that on Thursday's show. All right, stick with us. We're playing the hits till Chuck recovers. More from Sebastian, Dan, Lindsay, and Jeff this week and next week. All right, I got a rotten history for you, an all-new rotten history, and... Um, this is why I don't ever leave my house. Here we go. Rotten history. Rotten history for the week of Monday, April 25th, 2022. On April 28th, 1988, that was 34 years ago this week, a Boeing 737 operated by Aloha Airlines departed from Hilo International Airport on the big island of Hawaii for a routine one-hour flight to Honolulu with 89 passengers and six crew. In its 19 years of service, the plane had already made almost 90,000 takeoffs and landings, with no significant problems. Now it was making its seventh short flight of the day, taking off into clear skies and fair weather. Just as the plane reached its cruising altitude of 24,000 feet, the fuselage cracked open. The explosive decompression caused the ceiling and walls of the plane to rip away from just behind the cockpit to the front of the wing, a segment of about 18 feet Chunks of metal hit the plane's wings and tail and knocked out one of its two engines. A flight attendant in the middle of serving drinks was blown out of the plane, never to be seen again. The passengers, fortunately still wearing their seatbelts, had the terrifying experience of being exposed to brutal wind and freezing temperatures while strapped into a naked, wide-open airframe suspended more than five miles above the Pacific. The captain made a high-speed emergency descent and landed the plane at the island of Maui in 13 minutes. Most passengers had suffered injuries from the sudden loss of air pressure and were rushed to area hospitals. An inquiry later determined that the plane's fuselage had been corroded and weakened by humidity and salty air. It had been flown far beyond its recommended lifetime of takeoffs and landings, and maintenance crews could not inspect it properly because the pressure of the Aloha Airlines flight schedule required them to only do their inspections at night when they were tired and could not see as well. 
One passenger later told investigators that while boarding, she had noticed a crack in the fuselage, but had not told anyone since she assumed the crew already knew about it. That's Rotten History for this week. Rotten History is written by Ronaldo Magaldi. Thanks, Ronaldo, and thank you for listening today. Uh, there's more hell coming your way this week, and next week, and the week after. And hopefully an update from Chuck soon. You can say hi to him yourself, you know. Just email chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. Uh, for, or find him on Facebook. All right, you can say bye to me right now, because I go pick up my kid up from school. God bless. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>